Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, March 30th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is breaking international news from chilly climbs of a proud and hardy people who rally around their leader, a leader who looks good shirtless. Not the Russians. I'm not talking about the Russians. I'm talking about the Canadians. There's a media scandal in Canada that you need to hear about. Everyone is calling it Sucklegate. Uh, Mike, no one is calling it Sucklegate. Okay, but if they could, they would. A columnist for the Globe and Mail wrote a story, and thank you, Chris Brubeck, wrote a story about how many years ago, she, a confused young woman of 25, she did what many young women do. It's only natural. You see it all the time on Snapchat and Instagram and that HBO show, Girls. She picked up a newborn babe. She'd never met the babe. And unbeknownst to the parents, she began attempting to nurse said baby. Uh, Mike, I'm not sure she got that far. She did say that she considered attempting to nurse the baby. I thought the uh, I thought the, the, the breast was exposed. She was taking it off uh-huh. as the parent of the babe walked in. Okay, potential suckle gate. Anyway, this columnist, Leah McLaren, she, we should know that at the time she wasn't nursing, so there couldn't have been any milk, Though there has been a milking of this story years later. Oh, extra detail. The baby wasn't just any baby, though. They're also precious to Michael Chong, who is now a prominent conservative politician in Canada. That was his baby. That was his son. Chong did call the behavior odd. Those out of touch conservatives. What does he know? He hasn't been there. Uh, Mike, no one has been there. All right. All right. I got a few more questions. Uh, This story obviously is confusing to many Canadians. Yes. Does it fit in with what we know of uh, Leah McLaren? Yes, I would say so. Leah McLaren has a bit of a reputation a couple of years ago. As a baby suckler? uh, No, as as someone who makes curious choices with her column. Okay. I worked at the Globe and Mail a couple of years ago when she tried to use the column to sell her house, Uh which generally is poor etiquette, I would say, yes, in the op-ed in non, column world. Right, in non-Murdoch-owned publications. That's mm-hmm. right. So did she it work, is, by the way? Did she sell the house? Uh, the house sold. The house oh. sold 1000 above asking price. So wow. it clearly did fairly well for her. But um, 1000 Canadian. 1000 Canadian. Yes, oh, that's right. So 750. Like 750 yeah. US. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, and the other thing that came out is like all the timeline was wrong. The timeline makes no sense because in the article, she says that she was texting, which was not a common thing 16 years ago when the article would have taken place. Michael Chong did not have children 16 years ago. That seems the more salient point. That seems the more salient point. So either she did this in her 30s when she was arguably, I mean, she always should have known this was a bad idea, but certainly too old to have done this 
when she was in her mid-30s. Or it was somebody else's baby and Michael Chong intervened. Some people think time travel might be the explanation. <laughs> Lots of possible explanations for why this happened. Well, thank you, Chris Berube. Now we know about Sucklegate. Uh, Mike, no one calls it Sucklegate. Okay. On the show today, the other chilly place that distracts us with crazy news stories, Russia. We go inside today's Senate Intel Committee hearings. It includes the word of a man who testified and stole the show, Clinton Watts. He's a real Russia expert. I would first start off with, I'm not the foremost Russian expert. All right, then. Well, we better get a real Russia expert. And we have one. Here's Tom Nichols. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com Joining me now is Tom Nichols. His latest book is called The Death of Expertise, and he has a stake in that claim because he is a mortician. No, wait, I'm focusing on the wrong noun. He is an expert, a Russia expert. He was a Senate staffer, college professor, and currently a professor for national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. And two things that are tangentially important or that you may glean from our talk. One, he is a Republican never-Trumper who eventually endorsed Hillary Clinton because Trump was just too dangerous, he argued. The second thing is, he is a five-time Jeopardy champion. Therefore, I began our conversation by asking a question, but phrasing it in the form of a question. So while I have you here and you are a Russia expert, tell me one thing that is either not being discussed or that's underemphasized in this whole Russia hacking the election story. There's, As we talk, there's a, a Senate committee uh, convening today discussing it. But what is one underappreciated aspect of this, do you think? That is a great question. And the answer is the degree to which the Russians are determined to break NATO. Mm -hmm. The Russians have attacked our democratic institutions. They're, they've done it brazenly. They've done it openly uh, in a way that we've really n never seen before where they're practically bragging about it. I mean the United States and, and the old Soviet Union used to play uh, this game. They have these kind of slap fights uh, more quietly. The Russians have directly come at us now against our institutions. But the story that's not being talked about is that underlying all of this, going all the way back through uh, WikiLeaks and Snowden and Putin's behavior, uh, going back even uh, 10 or 12 years, Russian military exercises, there is a consistent and very conscious and very well-executed plan to drive a wedge between the United States and Europe. And to force the United States out of European affairs, to leave Russia dominant on the continent, and to prove that NATO is just a fiction, that it's just a piece mm. of paper. And I think the dangerous part of that is that at some point, Putin and his coterie will try to test NATO and to test NATO's Article 5, which is the Mutual Defense Clause, to see if we will actually respond to it, which could lead either to the collapse of NATO or to World War III. Yes, um, it's been invoked once. It was the 9-11 attacks, but they right. could, what, roll into Estonia? 
Well, I, I think the danger is that they don't roll. It's that they creep. That uh, they do it kind of the way they they did with Ukraine, where they respond to some fake humanitarian crisis, pretend that there are Russian speakers in danger, put in some small force that's there to quote unquote help the locals or to help you know fake volunteers, and then they just over time get us used to the idea that there are Russian forces sitting on NATO territory. And let us die the death of a thousand cuts so that five or six or ten years from now, they can say, see, NATO never meant anything. Aren't there Russian forces on NATO territory in Turkey right now? Not occupying Turkish uh, territory and they've – the Turks and the Russians, um, you know, the Russians overflew the Turks and the Turks yeah. shot down the plane and they all it's agreed complicated. to kind of – Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, right. Yeah. If they were a Facebook relationship, they'd be complicated. Right. Um, but there are not Russian forces in there and Turkey is still a member of NATO. They haven't seized any territory. Uh, but I think that they will try at some point to show that NATO doesn't matter because Putin – he's not a communist. He's He's – what he really is is a guy who's nostalgic for the old days of the Soviet Union as a great power. He didn't care about the right. ideology or the communism or any of that stuff. But he misses he misses the days when the United States was flat on its back and the Kremlin was riding high. And he's trying to get back to that. Yes. And his people want that too, whether they know it or not. And every time he could play on those nationalistic instincts, it works. But this would suggest to me that the reason they're – well, what do you think? The reason that they're so against NATO is they want to have their own sphere of influence. They don't want to roll into Washington, D.C. or take over the world. They just want that area of the world to be under their hegemonistic control. Well, there, it's actually more complicated than that because for a lot of Russians over a certain age, you know, the Russians who are like my age, right, in their kind of mm -hmm. mid to late 50s, NATO is just a kind of a hot button for them because they were just – you know, it was just driven into them for years that NATO is the most dangerous thing in the world. And some of those folks are never going to get over that. And it's understandable. And the Americans have to shoulder some blame here. I mean, we expanded NATO pretty fast. And we basically pushed the Russians out of the way and said, we don't really care what you think about this, even when the Russians were a lot friendlier to us in the 1990s. And I think, you know, Clinton and Albright and others have a lot to answer for there. But the other problem is that NATO represents the successes of everything Russia failed at. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason Russians hate NATO is because Russia just doesn't have any friends in the world. You know, I've, I've, I, even I've kind of tweaked some of my Russian colleagues about this. They say, oh, you guys aggressive, aggressively expanding NATO. I'm like, look, I'm sorry that we have friends and you don't. Um, you have clients. You know, yeah. Russia doesn't have friends. They have clients. They have customers. They have temporary expediencies. They have other dictators like Assad who want to be on their side. But they don't really have friends with whom they share a worldview. And on top of that, the Russians look over at NATO and I, I think as they have for hundreds of years, long before the Bolshevik Revolution, they look over at Western Europe and they say, how come those people live so well and we keep screwing everything up over here? How, Do they not have how, friends? How does that happen? Do they not have friends because they don't have something to sell the world besides Russian power and dominance? Like at least the United States represents a few things and has delivered to some extent on things like freedom, openness, uh, jazz and blue jeans. Yeah, they, they don't have an ideology that isn't – I mean they had friends and allies for the short time that they had an ideology, which of course was an oppressive ideology, but it was attractive to at least some people. Right. Um, but but Russia's never really had a concept of a nation – uh, that isn't about Russia, that isn't about the messianic place of Russia. And, you know, the United States, uh, I, I, 
this is something that's really interesting. You're talking about Russians when you, you try to get them to understand why, for example, the United States, Canada, Great Britain, France are all so close. It's not because we're all, uh, you know, capitalist economies. I mean, that, that, there's a lot of capitalist economies we're not friendly with. They, they, it's almost like they can't understand this kind of family feeling among democracies and the shared history of, you know, two, three hundred years of interaction among us that they've never had with anybody else. They find it, I think, genuinely mystifying sometimes. I have heard this idea that Putin's trying to rewrite the Cold War. Do you think there's a good chance he could succeed? No, but I think you're right that he wants to get a better outcome from it. I think he feels like the the Soviet leaders before him uh, got a raw deal and just rolled over. Now, I think that's ridiculous. I think um, the Soviet Union uh, – I would actually say the, the Soviet Union and its leaders got off the hook a lot more easily than history normally lets people like that off the hook since many of them instead of ending up in prison or at the end of a noose ended up getting rich. But uh, I think he feels that way and he feels that the, that the Soviet Union got a raw deal, that it was handed over to the West, that uh, Russia is a great power whose interests weren't respected after the end of the Cold War. And now there's a kind of a uh, revanchism, this kind of urge to get even with the West. And I, I, that's the thing I find the most painful because I think Russia and the United States and Europe actually have a lot of common interests. And if the Russians can let go of this kind of, um, you know, deep sense of grievance that they've had for centuries and just join the Western world. I mean, they are part of the Western world. They, they, they hate to admit that sometimes, but uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg are in fact Western cities. They are very much a Europeanized culture. They are primarily a Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian nation uh, by history. This notion that Russia is special and isolated and unique is what's keeping them special and isolated and unique. At what point does Putin sour on whatever Trump can give him and what does that look like? I think you're seeing it already. I think there's a certain amount of buyer's remorse in Moscow. I think they were popping some champagne corks because they hated Hillary Clinton so much. It's not so much that they were that much in favor of Donald Trump that I think it's I think you talked about what aren't people talking about. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think has become part of the conventional wisdom about the Russian attack on the election is that it was in, it was because the Russians were in Donald Trump's favor. That is, in, in my view, personally, incorrect. It's that they were so against Hillary Clinton um, because of her husband's role and her role in the 90s and what came afterwards. And um, I, I think that they were hopeful that Trump was basically going to just leave them alone, um, lift the sanctions, let them have their way in Europe and do whatever they felt like doing. They they may be souring on that, not because Trump's really going to oppose them, but because Trump is so unpredictable. And that always makes the Russians nervous. No, And it makes a lot of world leaders nervous. Nobody likes unpredictability in a U.S. president. You know, I think the Russians are looking over at us saying, well, we let, you know, what, who do we talk to and how do we know what, what's op, what statement? I think like a lot of us are, they're saying what statement is operative on any given day. I think that may have the Russians a little bit unnerved about Trump and not in a good way. I know the president has talked about it's good to be unpredictable. It's okay to be unpredictable. It's not okay to be random. And I think that's part of what they're worried about. Yeah. And it also helps Putin to have a boogeyman in the United States to blame on all the problems. 
of well, his world. Well, yeah, right right now that boogeyman for him is, you know, everybody in Europe, um, you know, Theresa May and Merkel and the rest of them. But uh, there's no doubt that, you know, he he will find somebody, if not Donald Trump, he will find somebody in the Trump administration to blame because this is what Kremlin leaders do. They say, well, it might not have been uh, George Bush, but it's Condi Rice. It may not have been Bill Clinton, but it's Madeleine Albright. They usually go for the next guy down to say that's the source of all our troubles in Washington. And I think that's going to happen, you know, pretty, pretty soon because I don't think the things that Putin wants, he can really get out of China. I mean, he's not really going to get the sanctions ending tomorrow. Um, he's not going to get any kind of major movement on, you know, Ukraine or any other major American policy. But on the other hand, I could, that it, things could change tomorrow. I mean, I, I, I don't know what America's Russia policy is right now. And I think that's a problem both for me and for the Kremlin because we all we all would like to know what that policy actually is. Tom Nichols is the author of The Death of Expertise, the Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us, Tom. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Today, we got a good indication of what it would be like to not live in a banana republic. A congressional committee held hearings, and the topic was a very important subject, should be important to all Americans. And the questions asked were dependent on what information Americans should know, as opposed to, is there a D or an R next to the questioner's name? Richard Burr, the Republican from North Carolina, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, came out swinging. We're all targets of a sophisticated and capable adversary, and we must engage in a whole-of-government approach to combat Russian active measures. Burr set the tone, essentially announced there wouldn't be any carrying of administrative water, and perhaps engaged in a whole bunch of other really fun cliches that basically say, we live in a real country. We are leaders with scruples. We have a shared set of values. It was kind of nice. Now, it's perhaps easier for senators to take this tack than representatives. Senators have six-year terms. There is an inability to gerrymander a state. And that means you can't create an electorate that only cares about one party or the other. But you know what? Even the big red state senators seemed interested, genuinely interested, seemed concerned, because this is very interesting and a very concerning matter. It's Russia's attempts and Russia's success at influencing the U.S. presidential election. So there was Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma asking Clinton Watts, why did these tactics work this time? Clinton Watts, who was an FBI special agent on the Joint Terrorism Task Force and a former executive officer of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, when asked why did the Russian tactics work, gave a longish answer, but it gives you some idea about the hearing. Listen to it. I think this answer is very simple and is what no one is really saying in this room, which is part of the reason active measures have worked in this U.S. election is because the commander in chief has used Russian active measures at time uh, against his opponents. On 14 August 2016, his campaign chairman, after a debunked insurrection, when you say his, who's, who's his? Paul Manafort okay. uh, cited the fake insurrection story as a terrorist attack on CNN, and he used it as a talking point. Uh, on 11 October, uh, President Trump stood on a stage and cited a, what appears to be a fake news story from Sputnik News that disappeared from the Internet. Uh, he denies the intel from the United States about Russia. 
Uh, he claimed that the election could be rigged. That was the number one theme pushed by RT, Sputnik News, white outlets, all the way up until the election. Uh, he's cl made claims of voter fraud, that President Obama is not a citizen, that, you know, uh, Congressman Cruz is not a citizen. So part of the reason active measures works, and it does today in terms of Trump Tower being wiretapped, is because they parrot the same lines. So... Putin is correct. He, he can say that he's not influencing anything because he's just putting out his stance. But until we get a firm basis on fact and fiction in our own, in our own country, uh, get some agreement about the facts, whether it be do I support the intelligence community or a story I read on my Twitter feed, we're going to have a big problem. Watts went on to say that gray outlets, meaning news outlets that don't disguise themselves and try to trick you, but also don't just say, hey, here's the news, judge it for yourself, right in that gray area. He said that these gray outlets tweet at Trump in hours when Trump is known to be on Twitter, and Watts expressed concern that Trump might take one of these fake claims and repeat them. And the remarkable thing is, well, the remarkable thing is that when you hear that, you say, yeah, that's that's plausible. So that's remarkable. But also, it's remarkable that no Republicans pushed back when Watts suggested that the Republican president could very well be taken in by Russian propaganda. No one questioned his motivation. No one ran interference and did the whole, well, Democrats do it also thing. In fact, Watts later pointed out that the Russians are and were indeed trying to influence anyone who could be influenced, including the Democrats. It's how the Russians do it. But the Democrats, they were there too. They were with Bernie Sanders supporters trying to influence them in different directions. So they play all sides. They, much like I learned in infantry school about how they use artillery, they fire artillery everywhere. And once they get a break in the wall, that's where they swarm in and they focus. And they do that very well today. You'll see them in Europe supporting people on the left or right, whichever will dismantle the democratic function that they're after. Next, responding to a question by West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin, Watts, who was one of three experts, but clearly the most compelling, talked about who the biggest threats to America and to him personally were. And I'll tell you right now, I'm going to walk out of here today. I'm going to be cyber attacked. I'm going to be discredited by trolls. Uh, you know, my biggest fear isn't being on Putin's hit list uh, or psychological warfare targeting. I've been doing that for two years. Uh, my biggest concern right now is I don't know what the American stance is on Russia and who's going to take care of me. I mean, after years in the Army and the FBI, uh, working in the intel communities today, I'm going to walk out of here and ain't nobody going to be covering my back. And again, his statement stood. No one was there to dismiss or quibble, or rebut, or say, how can you say that about the president or this administration? The message was clear. Experts, Democrats, and Republicans agree there is a real problem here. And maybe it's easier to get initial buy-in on that premise, because Hawks will say, yeah, there's a real problem. His name is Putin. But then even after that, when the next list of enablers was layered on, and it was said time and time again, the list certainly includes Donald Trump, there was no disagreement. Again, Maybe it's that the Senate, six-year terms, less overtly political. Maybe it's that Richard Burr has more character and smarts than Devin Nunes. Maybe it's the fact that the issue was cyber and the senators don't pretend to have expertise. There was a Senate hearing last week, you know, the confirmation of Judge Gorsuch, which was generally treated as an opportunity to give speeches and put your thumb on the scale of justice. But in this hearing, where the issues were about the internet, the senators didn't have some old familiar playbook to use. 
Well, for one thing, the average age in the U.S. Senate is 61 years old. And you kind of got that sense at the Gorsuch hearings, which were chaired by Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley. I have asked Senator Tillis to take over about eight o'clock so I can be in bed by nine o'clock because I get up at four in the morning and I want to be able to be able to get a good night's sleep so I can run in the morning. But the Intel Committee was alert today and wanted to put us on alert. So kudos to Republicans who put aside partisanship and a big wow over Clinton Watts. Can't give the guy a medal, but I can give him the highest honor. You know how much I like to talk. I will give him the final word. We are lost. We will become two separate, maybe three separate worlds in the United States just because of this little, little bitty pinprick that was put in by a foreign country. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson, Steve Lichtai, Andy Bowers. And I don't mean to lump all those people together or deny them their titles. You know, Gist producer, executive producer of Slate Podcast, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. But I want to highlight the work of another Gist producer, Chris Berube. It was 30 years ago today, March 30th, 1987, that a young Berube came into the world. So we would like to wish Chris a happy birthday. I mean, 1987, I sometimes forget this. When I think about the wisdom of Chris Berube, the even-tempered keel of Chris Berube, the fact that the guy never watched A-Team episodes when they originally aired, just must have binged them when put out by Shout Factory on DVD. So happy birthday, Chris Berube, Gist producer. Thanks for doing all you do. The Gist. We suckled at the teat of Howard Stern, Mike Francesa, and Bob Grant, and are just being weaned off David Letterman. Oomperu, depperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.